Welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast, based on the Morning Report series from Elsevier. This podcast has been adapted for audio in collaboration with series editor Dr. Raj Dasgupta and the volume editors of each book. Each episode features an in-depth case dissection format and aims to deliver practical, concise, and easy-to-digest information. And now, here's today's episode. Hi, everyone. This is Dr. Kate Merriweather, and welcome to the Beyond the Pearls podcast. Today, we're talking about a 25-year-old woman who presents to us early in pregnancy with a background history of obesity. You can tweet questions at me at Kate Merriweather one K-A-T-E-M-E-R-I-W-E-T-H-E-R-1. For those of you following along in the book, this is case 20 on page 138 and was written by Dr. Sangeeta Jain at University of Texas Medical Branch at Galveston and Dr. Joey England at the McGovern Medical School at the University of Texas Health Science Center in Houston. Let's go to our patient. So our patient is a 25-year-old Caucasian G2P0 woman. She presents to us at 10 weeks gestation for prenatal care. She has had one spontaneous miscarriage in the past. She and her partner are very excited about this pregnancy. They've been trying to conceive for almost a year. She works as an administrative assistant, and her partner works as a supervising engineer at an oil refinery. They have been together for the past two years. The history of miscarriage was with the same partner one year ago. So on presentation of prenatal care, what's your first assessment of this patient? Of course, you want to do a detailed history and physical examination for all patients that present for obstetric care. And you want to collect vital signs and do a physical examination that's relevant to the female gynecologic tract. This patient describes her gynecologic history as significant for irregular menses that occur every one to two months. She'll have bleeding for five days without passing clots, and she utilizes approximately three to four pads or tampons during that time. She's been sexually active since the age of 17 and has had two partners. She's also had normal pap smears. She had one infection with chlamydia that was treated at 17 years of age. She denies smoking and illicit drug use. She drank an occasional glass of wine in the evenings, prying to knowing she was pregnant this time. Family history is significant for diabetes and chronic hypertension, and both her parents have chronic hypertension. Her mother, sister, and maternal grandmother have diabetes. She denies a family history of major congenital anomalies, mental delay, cancer, or blood clots. So a little clinical pearl relevant to this patient's history. The occurrence of abnormal uterine bleeding, including menses that occur at irregular intervals, sometimes called in the past metaragia, or heavy menstrual bleeding, sometimes called in the past menorrhagia, are both associated with obesity. So this patient being obese has a risk for having irregular uterine bleeding. Additionally, people with obesity are increased risk for polycystic ovarian syndrome and vice versa. And of course, polycystic ovarian syndrome is uh, involving and ovulation, so non-cyclic bleeding. Polycystic ovarian syndrome would also be marked by hyperadrogenetic signs and characteristic ovarian appearance of multiple cysts on ultrasound. So given this patient's irregular menses history, you have to keep those two diagnoses in mind. If she did in fact have polycystic ovarian syndrome, she might also have had trouble conceiving. So let's go to this patient's physical exam. Her vital signs are collected and she has a height of 1.6 meters or 5 foot 3 and a weight of 91.6 kgs, or 202 pounds, with a body mass index of 36 kgs per meter squared. Her temperature is 36.6 Celsius, with a blood pressure of 122 over 78. Heart rate is 89 per minute, and respiratory rate is 20 per minute. On physical exam, she appears overweight and otherwise healthy. Technically, with a BMI of 36 kgs per meter squared, she's obese. 
She has a normal cardiopulmonary abdominal breast and pelvic exam. Her lower extremities do not demonstrate tenderness or edema. So when you review this preliminary history and physical exam, what's the greatest risk factor for this pregnancy? How prevalent is that among women in the United States? So obesity, of course, is the greatest risk factor for this pregnancy and poor outcomes. We'll talk about some of those in a minute. 36% of women 20 years of age or older are obese. This number increases to 64% when overweight and obese categories are combined together. Among Caucasians, 66.7% are obese or overweight, 34.3% are considered obese, and 57 are considered to have extreme obesity. Among African Americans, that's 76.7% considered overweight or obese, 49.5% considered obese, and 13.1% considered to have extreme obesity. Among Hispanics, 78.8% were considered overweight or obese, 39.1% considered obese, and 5% were considered to have extreme obesity. In 2013, obesity was estimated to affect more than 2 billion individuals worldwide. This is a worldwide epidemic. So what are the goals during this patient's first prenatal visit? After you do this thorough history with a focus on comorbid medical conditions, a physical exam should be performed and you should get prenatal laboratories collected. That should include for this patient an early glucose challenge test or a GCT. The early GCT screens for pregestational diabetes. Of course, this patient is at risk for pregestational diabetes, not only because of her obesity, but also because of her strong family history of diabetes. The GCT, if it's normal or negative, should be repeated again at 24 to 28 weeks time frame as the patient is undergoing routine prenatal care. Patients with a history of bariatric surgery should undergo a one-week paneling of fasting and two-hour postprandial finger sticks for glucose levels in lieu of a GCT because it might cause dumping syndrome, a high carbohydrate intake leading to osmolic diarrhea, distension, and hypovolemia. Hypovolemia and dumping syndrome occurs as the fluid shifts from the intravascular space to the enteric intraluminal space. Also, during this visit, this particular patient should be scheduled for a nutrition consult and encouraged to exercise. Pregnancy is an ideal time to get in those behavioral modifications because you got a very motivated patient that wants the best for the health of her and her baby, and you've got these frequent medical contacts where you're doing medical provider supervision at regular intervals. This patient should be encouraged to start exercising and achieve the goal of moderate intensity exercise for about 30 minutes daily on most days of the week. That can include walking, swimming, stationary cycling, and low-impact aerobics that are safe to initiate during pregnancy. If performed regularly during the pregnancy, she could also do strength training. So we do a glucose challenge test on this patient, and she has a result of 120 milligrams per deciliter, which, by the way, is normal. Anything less than 140 milligrams per deciliter is normal for this early glucose challenge test. So what are complications of obesity during pregnancy? Obesity is associated with increased risk for spontaneous miscarriage, fetal congenital anomalies, gestational diabetes, preeclampsia, acute fatter livy disease, sleep apnea, anesthesia complications, and cardiac dysfunction. Increased fetal risks from the maternal obesity include stillbirth and congenital anomalies. Intrapartum, the patients are at increased risk for failed induction, cesarean delivery, postpartum hemorrhage, postoperative wound infection, endometritis, so intrauterine infection, and venous thromboembolism. There's also an increased risk of delivery of an infant that's large for gestational age. And a little clinical pearl, not only are these infants larger for gestational age, but infants grown in the diabetic state also uh, have larger fat deposits around their chest and shoulders. 
So there are increased risks of shoulder dystocia, herbs palsy, clavicular fracture, and low APGAR scores as a result. In the postpartum period, early termination of breastfeeding, increased risk of anemia, depression, and metabolic dysfunction are all seen. If glucose intolerance was present during the pregnancy, assessment for type 2 diabetes should be repeated postpartum at about six weeks after delivery. A plan for weight reduction after the pregnancy should also be initiated with the patient. So let's do a little bit more information on our patient. So our patient advances to 21 weeks gestational age, and she undergoes a detailed anatomy ultrasound revealing an estimated fetal weight of 450 grams, which is the 84th percentile. So we're already a little concerned that she's knocking on the door of having a large for gestational age infant. She has normal amniotic fluid, and the infant is without structural abnormalities. At each prenatal visit, her BMI and weight gain are addressed, and she has a repeat GCT performed at 28 weeks that has a value of 150 milligrams per deciliter. Now that's abnormal because it's greater than 140. Due to that elevated one hour, she undergoes a confirmatory three-hour glucose challenge test. The results are fasting, 94, one hour, 182, two hour, 150, and three hour, 132. She's relieved that although one of the values, that was the one hour, was elevated, the remaining values are within normal limits, so she doesn't meet criteria for the diagnosis of gestational diabetes. Little clinical pearl to review the glucose challenge test. Screening for gestational diabetes is, as you might remember, performed between 24 and 28 weeks gestation. A one-hour 50-gram oral GCT, also called a glucola, is administered. And if the blood glucose levels are higher than 140 milligrams per deciliter at one hour, you suspect gestational diabetes. But you have to confirm it with a three-hour 100-gram oral glucose challenge. So you give them 100 grams, and then you take their values at fasting, one hour, two hours, and three hours. And the normal values for that are 95 or less, 180 or less, 155 or less, or 140 or less. So it's abnormal if you have two of the following that are true. Greater than 95, fasting, greater than 180, one hour, greater than 155 at two hours, greater than 140 at three hours. And all of these units are in milligrams per deciliter of glucose. So what are the recommendations for weight gain during pregnancy for obese women? The Institute of Medicine guidelines for weight gain during pregnancy are based on the BMI that the patient has when she enters care. In overweight women with BMIs of 25 to 29.9 kgs per meter squared, the recommended rate of weight gain is pretty slow still. It's about 6.8 to 11.3 kgs for the whole pregnancy, so 15 to 25 pounds. In obese women with BMIs of 30 or above, that's like our patient, we recommend a weight of 0.2 kgs per 0.5 pounds of of weight they came in with during the second and third trimester. That's 4.9 to 9 kgs or 11 to 20 pounds for the whole pregnancy. Unfortunately, there's no recommendations by the individual classes of obesity. Pre-pregnancy weight loss, if the patient's not yet pregnant, would be recommended for optimal outcome. There's some limited data that in women with BMIs that are greater than 35 kgs per meter squared, minimal or lack of weight gain during pregnancy helps keep the outcomes good and has no adverse effect on the newborn. So let's go back to our patient. In the third trimester, the fundal height is difficult to assess due to her prenatal habitus. So the patient undergoes a growth ultrasound revealing an appropriately grown fetus and that measures in the 70th percentile for gestational age, so we don't have a large for gestational age fetus. 
She's scheduled for an anesthesiology consultation prior to delivery, a very good idea given that women with obesity sometimes have difficult airways or are more at risk for needing an instant cesarean section. And she undergoes an uncomplicated spontaneous vaginal delivery at term. So this patient had a good outcome despite her risks. If she had needed a cesarean section, what kind of skin incision would you have selected for her cesarean delivery? Unfortunately, this hasn't been decided upon by the evidence. Options include supra-umbilical, vertical, and transverse skin incisions. The Maternal Fetal Medicine Units Network performed a secondary analysis of vertical versus transverse cesarean delivery incisions. Vertical skin incisions were associated with lower wound complication rates, but there was concern regarding the fact that this study was observational and had some selection bias. The supra-umbilical incision has been preferred in some patients with a very large paniculus because, of course, you can put it above the umbilicus and therefore avoid it being in the cleft between the panis and the pubic bone. Some studies have reported an association between supra-umbilical incision and increased rates of classural hysterotomy. That's due to the restricted intraoperative exposure. When you don't have as big of an incision, sometimes surgeons struggle once they get to the uterus to get down to the lower uterine segment. So they more frequently have to make a vertical or what we call a classical incision on the uterus, so a classical hysterotomy. The supraumbilical incision was also associated with longer operating room times, but there's no randomized trial data. So that's a great research idea out there for you guys who are curious. Are there any long-term implications of obesity on a woman's health? So obesity-related infertility is very prevalent worldwide. So women that have obesity can be counseled that they may have decreased fertility or ability to become pregnant. After delivery, obese women are at increased risk for type 2 diabetes, we talked about that already, hypertension, cardiovascular disease, and stroke. Certain cancers, especially endometrial cancer, which is very relevant to us as obstetrician and gynecologist, is associated with obesity. In women who lose weight, their risk for endometrial cancer declines, so that's the good news. What has been the impact of bariatric surgery on the health of women who are obese of reproductive age? The U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, reports a rate of 30% of obesity among reproductive age women. After introduction of uh, bariatric surgery, by 2006, over 200,000 surgeries had been performed in the United States, and of these, 80% were for females. 65% of those were for females younger than 50 years of age. So there's been a huge surge of bariatric surgery done for women of reproductive age. So what the heck is bariatric surgery and what are types and their risks and benefit profiles? Bariatric surgery is weight loss surgery performed for obese individuals who have failed weight loss attempts and have normal psychological screening. So there are several types. There's restrictive procedures such as what we used to call the lap band. This is a small, simple surgery where a band made of compatible material is placed around the stomach close to the gastroesophageal junction. The band is then adjusted with the help of a connecting port located in the subcutaneous tissue of the stomach. Complications of this surgery include band slippage in up to almost 14%, band erosion in 3%, and port access problems, so inability to access the port that inflates it and adjusts it. That's up to 5%. There's also restrictive surgery. And this is sometimes called sleeve gastrectomy because that's a classic example. This is where a narrow gastric sleeve is created by stapling the stomach vertically and the fundus and the greater curve of the stomach are removed from the abdomen. Complications of this include leakage, where the staple line was, 2%, or gastric luminal narrowing due to the stenosis of the sleeve. 
There's also malabsorptive procedures such as the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. Um, This is a much more extensive procedure and requires a lot more expertise to do. In this procedure, the stomach and duodenum are bypassed. There's decreased nutrient absorption as a result. Complications include bowel obstruction in 1%, anastomotic leaks in 1 to 2%, stomal stenosis 2 to 14%, and marginal ulcers 2 to 10%. Small bowel obstruction resulting in an internal herniation has lifetime incident up to 10% in patients who have undergone a Roux-en-Y gastric bypass. So little clinical pearl. In the United States, the Roux-en-Y gastric bypass is considered the gold standard for bariatric surgery and entails division of the upper stomach to create a small gastric pouch. It's about 15 to 30 milliliters. And that's then connected to a 100 to 150 centimeter limb of the dejunum. That's called the Roux limb. Food thus bypasses the majority of the stomach, the duodenum, and the proximal dejunum. Because of the limited size of the stomach, the patient is also limited in the amount of food they can comfortably consume. Another clinical pearl about gastric bypass, signs and symptoms of small bowel obstruction from internal herniation can mimic symptoms of pregnancy, and they include nausea, vomiting, abdominal epigastric pain, constipation, abdominal distension, tympanic abdominal percussion, and hyperperistalsis and abdominal auscultation. So if a woman with a history of a bariatric surgery presented to us with these symptoms, we might have to sort out, is she pregnant? Does she have potential bowel obstruction due to her former gastric bypass surgery? A recent meta-analysis reported that bariatric surgery reduces the incidence of gestational diabetes by half as compared with obese patients. Similarly, the risk of preeclampsia may be decreased significantly after bariatric surgery as well. The American College of Obstetricians and Gynecologists, we call them ACOG, recommends avoiding pregnancy for 12 to 24 months after bariatric surgery. That's because of the rapid weight loss and this theoretical concern of nutritional deficits. Folic acid supplementation is recommended at higher doses of 4 milligrams daily, although there's limited data to support this, because there's increased risk of folic acid deficiency from malabsorption after bariatric surgery. During pregnancy, monitoring of nutritional status is recommended for women that have had bariatric surgery, with lab evaluations including a complete blood count, CBC, and iron, ferritin, calcium, and vitamin D levels every trimester. Some studies associated bariatric surgery with fewer large for gestational age infants and more small for gestational age infants. In a population-based study, and this was 298 women that followed previous bariatric surgery patients, there were similar rates of perinatal death, congenital malformations, and APGAR scores compared to women that had not had this history. So a little clinical pearl about folic acid deficiency. Folic acid deficiency during pregnancy is associated with neural tube defects. The proposed mechanism is enhanced cell proliferation for the neural tube closure directly or involvement of the epigenetic regulation of gene expression that controls neural closure. Neural tube closure occurs within the first four weeks of embryonic life and definitely is done by six weeks gestation. Due to the many unplanned pregnancies, folic acid supplementation is recommended for all women of reproductive age because you don't necessarily know when you're going to become pregnant, so most women can't supplement before neural tube closure has occurred. So let's go beyond the pearls. Despite frequent provider recommendation, bed rest is rarely indicated during pregnancy and may lead to harm, including deconditioning and venous thromboembolism. So women that have increased risk of venous thromboembolism, like for example our patient in this case, should not be recommended on bed rest unless there is an absolute indication for it. 
absolute contraindications to aerobic exercise during pregnancy include restrictive lung disease, cervical insufficiency, preterm labor or preterm rupture of membranes, preeclampsia, persistent vaginal bleeding, and significant maternal heart disease. So let's do a quick case summary. So we met a 25-year-old G2P0 woman who presented to us at 10 weeks gestation in her first trimester for prenatal care. Her medical history is significant for obesity with a BMI of 36 kgs per meter squared. During her prenatal care, she underwent a thorough history and physical examination, routine prenatal labs, and an early glucose challenge test, which was normal. Her anatomy ultrasound is normal at 21 weeks. Throughout her pregnancy, her weight gain is monitored and repeat glucose challenge tests is performed at 28 weeks gestation. It did have an elevated one hour, but the rest of it was normal, so she didn't meet criteria for gestational diabetes. She underwent an anesthesia evaluation prior to delivery and has an uncomplicated spontaneous vaginal delivery. This patient had excellent outcomes, but I wanted you all to be aware of some of the complications that it can occur in obesity. And especially because obesity is so common in this country, very important to think about it as affecting women's reproductive lives. Thank you for listening to the Beyond the Pearls podcast from Inside the Boards. This podcast is executive produced by Christopher Breidigan and Dr. Patrick Beeman. This podcast is for educational purposes only and is not intended as medical advice. Ars longa, vita brevis.